Okay, good morning everyone. Continue our uh, Amuna Shirim. We're going to study another piece by the Slan Marebbe on this week's parasha. We are on break after this for several weeks, leaving Sunday on vacation. We'll resume the end of August and I'll send out an email to uh, remind everyone. We're going to dedicate our learning this morning to a continued Rufu Shlema for all those who are ill. In particular, we uh, still have in mind our uh, beloved friend Baruch Tzvi Ben Rivka Batya. Should have a uh, complete and speedy and painless Rufu Shlema. And uh, we're also dedicating our learning this morning, Le'iloi Nishmas, to uh, uh, elevate the soul, the memory, of a very uh, dear and special person whose uh, burial is actually taking place in Eretz Yisrael right now as we learn. Ben Zion, Ben Reb Shmuel Aaron, Ben Grossman, a young man who used to live in our community, who moved to L.A., who passed away uh, this week. 37 years old, a unbelievably special person, and uh, a role model of Amuna who confronted his illness and his challenges with really just most inspirational faith and uh, a, a really remarkably optimistic, positive, special person. His precious neshama should have an aliyah and his wife and, and beautiful children should find a nechama somehow, the strength to uh, to endure. Okay, we're on page Kuf Pei Chesir, Ari Miklat. The end of uh, Parshas Masei, the book of Bamidbar ends with the laws of the Ir Miklat, the city of refuge. When a person murders accidentally, which of course one needs to strictly define what does it mean murder, what does it mean accidentally, which is not in the purview of our time this morning. But uh, when you define the criteria, those who meet those criteria, whom they are vulnerable to the loss of the life of the one who died being avenged by their family, so those individuals can run, can flee to an Ir Miklat, a city of refuge. It's a safe space. It's a very popular term in our uh, generation, safe space. So uh, Ir Miklat is a safe space for them to run to, and they are untouchable within the Ir Miklat. There were six Are Miklat, three in Israel proper, three outside of Israel, even though the population outside of Israel was much less than the population inside of Israel. So why did they need as many Are Miklat as those inside Israel? So the Gemara notes, because why did those who took up residence outside of Israel do so? We talked about this in the Parsha Shir yesterday. Reuven got in half of Menashe because they prioritized their, their, uh, their material possessions. They prioritized their professional ambition. They had great livestock. They saw east of the Yardin as the perfect place, the fertile land to be able to grow their business. And so rather than put their destiny with the Jewish people in Israel proper, they instead, they instead took up residence outside. And the Gemara notes that when a person prioritizes their material possessions, then ultimately it leads to accidental murder. In other words, it undermines a sense of a mindful living. It undermines a sense of spirituality. Accidents are more prone to happen when a person's values and priorities are, are, uh, are not perfectly aligned. In any case, that's the topic of today. The cities that were given to Leviim, the six cities of refuge that were designated to flee there, the one who murders accidentally. And the Mepharshim say, What is the connection between the Are Miklat and the city of the Leviim? In other words, in the Parsha, before we're told about the Are Miklat, we're told about the cities for the Levim. The Levim 
were the original model of a community kolo. They did not receive their own territory in the land of Israel, like the other tribes. Rather, they received cities designated within the territory of the other tribes. Why? Because rather than, rather than isolate the Levium on their own, God designed that they would be the role models, they would have an influence among everyone else. So what's the connection between the cities of the Levium and the cities of refuge? Ken Tzarech Birer, Masham Chazal, quoting the Gemara Makos, Asher Nas Shama, Sham Tehei Diraso, Sham Misaso, Sham Kfuraso. The individual who flees and finds protection in the city of refuge lives there, dies there, and is buried there. Why are they specifically buried in a city of the Levium? The whole reason the designation of a city of refuge is to be protected from the family of the one who was killed, avenging his blood by killing the murderer. So the whole reason they're going to the city of refuge is to find exactly that, refuge. Well, once they die, they don't need protection. They're gone. So why do they have to be buried there? Can't they be buried back with their family in a family plot? Here now, and, and again, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't like in the Amunashir studying something so particular to a parsha because it loses its shelf life until the next year that Parsha. So we're talking the general principles of Amuna. We're just using the Parsha in order to connect to them. But the general principles apply all year round. And here the Slanim Rebbe points us to the key word within the Pasuk, which is going to open our eyes to the entire story, but really also open our eyes to what a life of Amuna is all about. The verse says that the city of refuge is designated, for the murderer to flee to, the one, the one who killed someone else. And how did they kill someone else? How did they come to that? Because they acted. What are the next two words? Bivli dat. Bivli das. They acted without das. We have to define that word das. Thoughtfulness, mindfulness, attentiveness. They were not conscientious of what they were doing. And therefore someone died as a result. They didn't hate the person. This wasn't a case of enmity. This wasn't a case of conflict. This wasn't a violent dispute. This was simply a case of negligence. Bivli das can be called negligence. Bless you. I think in American law you have this too, right? There's, there's manslaughter. And then there's, what's it called if you kill by accident? Negligence. Negligence. So this individual is not manslaughter. They didn't premeditatively kill someone else they didn't get along with. But rather, it's a case of negligence. Ask the son of Rebbe the critical question in this parsha: If somebody kills by accident, if it's simply negligence, why are we calling him a murderer? Murderer suggests manslaughter. A rotzeach is somebody who spills the blood of another, which implies, which highly suggests manslaughter. It suggests a conscientious attempt premeditated attempt to murder. This individual, the axe flew off, they weren't conscientious about how they did things, and it was horrifically resulted in the death of another. But why are they called a murderer? So he says you can explain the whole thing based on the Rambam's comment in Morinavuchim. Velo yu'unelo korah. 
that at the moment a person clings to God, at the moment a person is connected to God, they have a divine protection, and nothing bad happens. It's a very complicated idea. Again, I think we talked about it last week, having just come back from Poland. We don't believe that all these righteous tzaddikim, gedolim, chassidish rebbes, these innocent women, children, men, they didn't lack a dveikos. Where, where was their shmira Elyona on the way into the crematorium? The stories, I just, uh, by Y.Y. Jacobson, I just, I don't know if you watched that video that was posted in our group, tells this unbelievable story of uh, thousands of Jews at a mass grave. And uh, it was Friday afternoon, going into Friday evening. And the whole town, which we saw in Tekochin and, and in other towns, Tarnow, the Jews were all gathered to the main shul. From there, marched out to a mass pit until the population, Jewish population of an entire town was wiped out. It was a Friday afternoon evening, and the Nazis took a break, and they were eating, and they were drinking, and one Jew stood up, realizing what time of day and what was about to happen, and started singing Shalom Aleichem. And the tune caught on, and the next Jew joined him, and the next one joined him, until thousands of Jews were singing Shalom Aleichem. The Nazis were irate, and they told them to stop, but they realized they had nothing to lose. They were standing at this mass pit because they were about to be murdered. So they continued until the entire group, thousands of Jews standing in a mass pit, greeted the Shabbos queen by singing Shalom Aleichem and said they could take our bodies, they could take our physical being, but they can't take our soul. Our soul can still taste the taste of Shabbos, the taste of the world to come. Then in the last moments of the life in this world, they were going to taste the taste of the world to come. He tells the story much more unbelievably. I'm sure you could Google this. He spoke at a dinner. And, um, and two people, two young boys, ran away to the adjacent forest and got away and told and repeated that whole story, having witnessed the entire thing. So, so where was their Shmira El Yonah? They're singing Shalom Aleichem. When we were in the gas chamber in Auschwitz, our incredible educator, Dr. Bernstein, told us the story of a Hasid Rebbe that led everybody in the cramped entrance to the gas chamber in a declaration of Shema Yisrael and singing Ani Mamin in the way in. That's Tveikas Bashem. Where was their Shmira El Yonah? So I don't believe that the Rambam in Mornavuchim is talking about some easy fixed formula. Oh, have dveikas, everything in life is good. No illness, no infertility, no shidduch problem, no parnasa problem, no nachas problem from your children. It's all on you. And if you have any of those problems, it's just because you lack dveikas. If you had learned to cling to the Almighty, if you'd learned to connect to God, if you'd invest everything of yours in God, how about Moshe Rabbeinu? He didn't get into Eretz Yisrael. He's devastated. He's broken. Did he have dveikas? There was no one greater. One of the 13 principles of our faith is that Moshe is categorically different than everyone who came before him and after him. So I don't think the formula, at least the way I interpret it, because for me it's difficult to accept it at its simple level, is meant to say, if you have challenges or suffering or hardship in your life, it's on you. Because you don't have the faith that you should have. It's not as pure as it needs to be. And if you have pure faith, ah, oh, serenity, tranquility, nothing goes wrong. You have a perfect life. Adarabah. Gemara tells us that God visits hardship on the righteous so that they have a more direct route to the world to come and they experience whatever they need to in this world. And that God visits, why were the Avos and Imos infertile? Why did they struggle? Because God craves their prayers. So we have a tradition of the most righteous, those with the greatest vekas, those with the highest level of Amunah, who have the farthest thing from the simple 
pleasant, perfect, tranquil life. So I don't believe it's meant to be taken exactly literally. Again, the way I always interpret it is, the more we cling, the purer our faith, the more we feel the presence of God's guiding hand in our life, the more we are empowered and enabled, the more strength we have to endure and navigate whatever hardship we have in life. It's as if we don't have it, because we're able to accept it from a position of faith. And if there's a break in that faith, if there's an interruption in that connection, now you are exposed, now you are vulnerable. So look at your life and you'll see that the moments of greatest hardship, when you felt broken and despondent, the moments when you were pessimistic and gave up hope, the moment when you were helpless and hopeless was when when you lacked the connection to the Almighty, when you began to doubt and feel uncertainty, when you began to say, maybe there really isn't meaning and order and purpose to it all. Maybe it's random. Maybe it's chance. Maybe it's statistical. Maybe it just is. And maybe there's nothing that comes after. And those are the moments that a person is most broken. Those are the moments that a person is most stuck. Those are the moments that a person is most down. When you, when you give up, and when that sense of connection is broken. And based on this, we can understand What does it mean the individual had an act of negligence, they murdered with negligence? The Torah is specifically using that word da'as, the person lacked da'as. Das is mindfulness of the presence of the Almighty in our lives. That God is always in the room with us. He's watching us and watching over us. He has expectations of us. He's there to help us and support us. But He's always there. To the degree that a person lives with an awareness... So the degree that a person lives with a mindfulness of the presence of the Ribbon Shalom in their life is the degree to which their life is enriched. They're much more mindful of everything that they do. Every morsel of food that they put in their mouth. Every act, every thought, every speech, every decision. If you live, which is of course the highest level, I don't mean to suggest this is simple. You leave the class, okay, you turn on the switch and now you're mindful of Hashem every moment of life. Hashem makes it hard. His being... Nistar, his being hidden, makes it very difficult. He's invisible. You can't touch him and feel him and smell him and talk to hear him. You can't. He makes it very challenging. Right? It's, it's hard. It's hard. But one lives with a sense of the mindfulness that Hashem is always there. They'll be much more conscientious of all that they do. Of all that they do. Right? We all have children who've uh, broken precious things in our homes or cars or other items of value. And we, the children say, like, what, what are you coming down on me? It was an accident. And what is the famous refrain that parents have coined? There are accidents that didn't have to happen. There are accidents that you couldn't control. And then there are accidents that didn't have to happen. I know it was an accident. You didn't intentionally break my vase. But you didn't have to have a football couch catch in the living room. There are accidents that didn't have to happen. So why do accidents that don't have to happen, happen? What made them not have to happen? And why did they happen? Because of a lack of thoughtfulness, of mindfulness. We probably shouldn't be having a football catch 
in the living room around very expensive items. This likely won't end well. So is it an accident? Yeah, it's an accident. You didn't take your mom's vase and throw it against the wall and smash it in a million pieces. It was an accident. It was an innocent accident. But even an innocent accident doesn't always have to happen. So that's the yisod, that's the principle that the Slalom Rebbe is developing here. That the more mindful we are of Hashem and therefore conscientious in all that we do, we will avoid accidents that didn't have to happen. Whether it's the accident that costs a life, whether it's the accident of eating without a bracha, whether it's the accident of saying gossip that ends up being very hurtful to another, whether it's the accident of making poor decisions or displaying poor judgment, whether it's the accident of engaging in self-destructive behavior, whether it's the accident of neglecting our body and our health and our well-being, whether it's the accident of relationships because we make... There's a million and one examples. But really, emuna is an exercise in mindfulness. Because what is emuna? Emuna is to live with an awareness that there is a creator, there's an almighty, he's with me, he has expectations of me, he cares about me, he loves me, and he's always there. He's always in the room. So now I have to make a different, I have a moral dilemma of what to do. I have a difficult decision to make. If I know that God is looking over my shoulder, He's always in the room. You know, I have to meet with the accountant before we leave next week. It's tax time, you know, running out of extensions. And whenever I meet with my accountant, I always tell him the same thing. When there's a question about whether to take something as a deduction or what to do exactly, I always say use the following guiding principle. Only do what you would do if the IRS agent were in the room while you were preparing the taxes. I want you to push the envelope as far as you can. I want you to save me as much money as you can. But when something is questionable and you're deciding whether to do it or not, the guiding principle is, would you do it if the IRS agent were looking over your shoulder while you were preparing the taxes? That's the guiding principle. I learned that principle from somebody who said, if you can't do it with your spouse in the room, it's cheating. What's cheating? It's a big discussion today. Emotional affair, a physical affair, flirting, online connections. What is the, what is the definition of an affair today? Not our subject, today or maybe ever. But somebody used to say it was a, that they were a member of the executive board and the executive board had decisions to make and, and, and she said to the executive board, don't do anything that you wouldn't be able to do if the whole membership were in the room while we had to make this decision. Meaning even if you think something's in someone's best interest, but if you wouldn't be able to do it, if you couldn't defend it with the others in the room, don't do it. So I applied that principle to the case of the IRS, but I think that's the case with the Ribona Shalom. If you feel that you're preparing the taxes, the IRS agent is in the room with me, you're going to bring a different level of diligence and vigilance to the preparation of those returns than if you think, ah, they never really look at it, they don't really see it, there's so many that are submitted, how scrupulous can they really be, how, how detailed can they really be? And the same is true in life. If you live life with like, yeah, there's a God, maybe there's no God, maybe there's a consequence, maybe I'm accountable, maybe I'm not, I'm sure he understands. Really, I want to do this right now, it'll be okay. Versus if you say, the Ribbon Shalom is in the room with me. There's a camera, it's always watching, it's always recording. But not from a punitive way, not like Big Brother's watching, from a loving way. My parent is always in the room, my spouse is always in the room. And I love my spouse and I would never want to damage the relationship. So I thought of this cute, witty response to my coworker of the opposite gender in a text message. But you know what? If my spouse saw it, they, would, they wouldn't be very happy with it. So I'm not writing it. Because if I wouldn't do it with them in the room, I don't want to damage the relationship. Even if I can justify it and explain it and I just mean it as a witty comment and I'm not flirting and I'm not whatever. 
So that's what the Islam Rebbe is saying. What does it mean, Da'as? The definition of living a life with Da'as, with thoughtfulness, with cognizance, with awareness, with mindfulness, is to live a life with the Ribbonu Shalom in the roof. The Almighty is always in the room. So whatever you're about to watch or read or listen to or say or do, whatever decision you have to make, whatever dilemma you have to resolve, whatever relationship you have, Hashem is always in the room. And that's true for the good. He's always there as a source of support. He's always there to provide His wisdom and His shelter. He's always there to help us get through it and to carry us. But He's also always there. And there's, there's accountability, there's consequences to what we do. Das is the knowledge that I'm living my life with Hashem. And that's dveikas. Clinging to Hashem, sticking with Hashem is a knowledge that He's always there. I love them. I've shared it before, the Meshechachma's definition of dveikas. The Torah in a number of places tells us, and it's counted by some of the Moniyah mitzvahs as a mitzvah of, of, of dveikas. You have to connect to Hashem. What does that mean, dveikas? Cling to God. What does that even mean? How do you define cling to God, dveikas? What does it mean? So the Meshachachma says, you know what it means? In modern Hebrew, what's devek? Glue. You know what it means? There's a new kid who comes to school, moves to the neighborhood, comes to school the first day, and they're really nervous. Really nervous. How do I fit in? Where do I go? How will I connect with the cool kids? So they know one kid in the school already. They have one friend in the school. They know him from camp. And what does that friend, existing friend say to the new kid? Just stick with me. Stick with me, you'll be just fine. Stick with me, I'll take care of you. Stick with me, you'll be where you need to be. Everything will work out just fine. Just stick with me. Dveka says the Meshachachma, Milashon Devek, like glue. God says, whatever's going on in your life, just stick with me. Stick with me. I know this world. I designed this world. I built this world. I run this world. Just stick with me. Stick with me. It's not easy. If you stick with that kid, does it mean that you don't have hard tests in the classroom that you followed that kid too? You have hard tests you have to take. You have to study. You have hard tests. You have challenges. You have difficulty. It doesn't mean everything is simple, even if you stick with that kid. And if you stick with Hashem, it doesn't mean that everything's simple. But what it means is that you can let go, let God. You don't have to carry that anxiety and that worry. Where do I go? What's next? How will it work out? What's going to be? Put all of that down. Give it a rest. It's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting to carry all of that. I've told the mushal before also of the uh, wagon driver who's driving by and there's a poor man on the side of the road walking and he asks if he could hitch a ride. The wagon driver says, uh, sure, no problem, I'm going to the same town, I'm happy to give you a ride. So the poor man takes all of his bundles and climbs into the wagon and he's getting a ride. And the driver turns around and notices that the man is still holding all of his bags and, and, and his possessions and his sacks. He says, why, why don't you put them down? So the poor man says to the driver, listen, I feel bad. It's, it's bad enough that you're giving me a ride. I would feel terrible that you'd have to give a ride to my bags also, so I'm just holding them. The wagon driver says, that's ridiculous. Once you're going along for the ride, you might as well you might as well put them down, and that's our attitude with the Ribbon Shalom. Going for the ride, you might as well put down the baggage. It just gets heavier and heavier the longer that you hold it, the longer you hold on to it. It's the professor who stood in the front of a classroom and held up a beaker of water and asked the students, "How much does this beaker of water weigh? Three ounces, five ounces, one pound, three pounds?" All the students start to guess, and the professor says, "You're all right. How can you all be right?" It's an objective answer. You put it on a scale. What, is the, what does it weigh? He said, no, you're all right. 
It all depends on how long I hold it. The longer I hold it, the heavier it feels. And the truth is the same with our anxiety and our worry and our fears and the uncertainty. The longer we hold on to them, the heavier they feel, the more they weigh us down. So put them down. Dveka says, cling to Hashem. What's going to be? What's going to happen with our children, with our health, with our parnasa, with the world, with Israel, with Hebron, with what's going to be? You know what? All I can live is right now. I live in this moment. This is the moment I have. I'm not yet up to tomorrow. And I'm already beyond yesterday. So the more I'm carrying the baggage of yesterday, the more it's weighing me down from what I need to do today. And the more I'm carrying the baggage of worrying about tomorrow, the more it's worrying me down from what I need to do today. All I have is the here and now. All I have is the present. All I have is the today. So I'm going to sacrifice and forfeit the today because I'm still carrying the baggage of yesterday or I'm worried about tomorrow, that makes sense? makes no sense at all. You have to live each day to its fullest, and only have to know, what do I have to do today? So what happened yesterday, and what I'm worried about tomorrow, can inform what I need to do today. I'm not advocating carpe diem, do what you want, live life, it's fleeting, just pursue pleasure, because who knows what will be. I'm not advocating that. Yes, what happened yesterday, and what will be tomorrow, should, should inform what I do today. But the only dimension I live in is today. That's the only dimension I exist in. So I'm going to forfeit today. Many older people lose the present because they're stuck in the past. They tell you all about what their life used to be like and where they used to live and what they're up and what they're trying. And what about now? You know, you're still alive. You're still breathing. You still have opportunity. Why are you stuck in the past? You're giving up your present. And many young people give up their present because they're so worried about the future. Where am I going to get into college? Where am I going to get into Israel? Where am I going to get to college? Where am I going to marry? What am I going to do for a living? Where am I going to get? And, but what about today? What about who you are today? So everyone's in the past or the future and they forfeit the present. The present is what we have. So how do you live in the present? In the present? Taka, the past has a lot of regrets, a lot of memories, a lot of nostalgia. It's hard to move on. The future has a lot of uncertainty and a lot of doubt and it has a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. How do you not fixate on it? And the answer to all of it is Tveikas, it's Amuna. When you say, you know what? I'm the new kid on the block every day. Every day presents a new day for me, I'm a new kid. And God said, you know what? Stick with me. I got your back. Stick with me, I've got your back. If you stick with me, it doesn't mean you're not going to have to go into a classroom with hard work and hard tests, but it means that you're in the right place and you're doing what you have to do. And every day do what you have to do because all you have is that day and all you can do is get to the end of that day and you'll worry about tomorrow. When you get to tomorrow, I promise you it'll be there waiting for you. So Dveikas is Devek, glue. Hashem says, stick with me. And that's our mission, that's our mandate. To live with Amuna is every single day to feel Hashem's guiding hand on our shoulder, His loving embrace, to feel His presence, His comforting presence. Have to go to the doctor? Hashem is in the waiting room with us. You have to go to work, Hashem is at work overcoming whatever obstacles. There's challenges at home, Hashem is right there helping us through those challenges at home. We should turn once in a while and thank Him. Since He is in the room with us, it would be rude not to thank Him every now and then. But, Da'as. So how did it result? Coming back to the Ir Miklat, says the Salaam Rebbe. How did this result? How did this result come about? The person was killed by accident. You know why? Negligence is living a life without thoughtfulness of Hashem. That's negligence. To not be mindful of Hashem's presence in our life, to not cling to God, to not stick with Him, that's an act of negligence. It's an act of gross negligence. 
Because if you would have been mindful, there's a Ribbono Shalom. Where does he want me to go now? What does he want me to do now? How does he want me to decide this? What is the judgment he expects me to show? If you live with that level of thoughtfulness and mindfulness, the level of consciousness and conscientiousness, then you would never come to these accidents that didn't have to happen. So the accident that didn't have to happen happened because a neglect of the amuna and the dvekas that we were capable of ha- having. So a life of amuna is not just, you know, there's some mitzvahs which take a lot of sacrifice. And it's hard to explain what we get out of it. Check your clothing for shotness. Okay. I've got to find the shotness checker and drive my clothing there and pay them and then deal with the fact that my jacket's falling apart afterwards. And what do I get out of it? I'm not really sure. I know that there's no wool and linen mixture in my jacket and okay. It's hard. Some mitzvahs where it's hard. It's a chok. Shatnas is a chok. What I get out of it is the relationship that I was willing to do something that I didn't really understand and boy, my relationship was enhanced by that. That's what I get out of it. But Amuna is not one of those mitzvahs like cling to Hashem and you know, it's a lot of effort and you don't really understand why. You do understand. You see the results. The people who live with Amuna are the happiest people. Because where does unhappiness often come from? It comes from anxiousness and anxiety, stress. I just read an article about research that was done that shows that for many people, anxiety translates into anger. So people who lash out at their spouse, at their children, people who have no patience and anger, at the root and core of that often is stress and anxiety. They're worried, there's a lot on their place, there's a lot of stress. And rather than honor those feelings and work them out, they just become impatient and they lash out and it comes out as anger. So if you were able to resolve the anxiety and the stress, not only with your blood pressure and your glucose levels and your cholesterol and your mental and physical well-being improve, your relationships would improve. Be happy. The biggest obstacle to happiness is worry and fear and anxiety. So if you could put all those bundles down in the wagon, if you could finally put that beaker down before it weighs a million pounds, and you could let go and say, you know what? I can only do what I can do right now. I'm doing my best in life. That which is beyond my control, I'm not going to worry about. Because worrying, by the way, did worry ever improve anything for anyone? Did worry ever change the outcome? You know, I took a biopsy and it was going to be uh, terrible, but I did a lot of worrying and Baruch Hashem, all that worrying really transformed the, uh, the tumor. Did anyone say, you know, there was no money in the bank account. I wasn't sure I was going to pay the bills, but I sat on the couch crying and worrying. And lo and behold, I checked my app and look at that. There was money there to pay the bills. I'm stuck in traffic. I'm going to be late to this important meeting. I sat there worrying and banging the steering wheel and lo and behold, it opened up for me. Worry never, ever did anything. In fact, worry actually does the opposite. It compounds your problems. Because when you worry, you make worse decisions. And when you worry, you push away the people closest to you. And when you worry, you just make things worse, not better. So what's the antidote to worry? Dvekus, amuna. Whatever's happening is meant to be. There's meaning and order and purpose to the universe. Whether I understand it or not, I have my marching orders, what I need to do today, and I can't start worrying about tomorrow or next week or next month or next year because that's beyond my capacity to influence. I can only worry about what I can influence. So it's legitimate for me to worry about will I give a good rush of the Shabbos. Why? Because it's up to me to put in the time and to do what I need to do to give a good Russia. And that worry is a healthy worry because that worry is going to motivate me to do what I have to do. If I worry, am I going to go to the doctors I need to go to? Or I worry about the fact that if I got bad labs, will I lose weight? Will I exercise? Will I eat right? That's a healthy worry because that's a worry that stimulates personal growth. But the worry of things that are beyond my control, 
Well, what if I exercise and eat right, but I still don't lose weight? Well, that worry is going to help you. The worry about the things that are beyond our control only compounds whatever obstacle we're trying to circumvent, whatever we're trying to overcome. And what's the antidote to worry? How can you have greater happiness in life? It's simply, it's called Vekas. It's called Vekas. I learned this most poignant. Last week I had a phenomenal meeting with somebody. I learned so much from people that I get to meet with. That's why I have the greatest job in the world. I met with somebody who is not in our community, who used to be, I'm close with, and he said a very rocky road health-wise, divorced twice, and, and financially. And he said to me, Rabbi, I have less than I've ever had and I'm happier than I've ever been. I said, wow, that's a, what a statement. I have less than I've ever had and I'm happier than I've ever been. How, how do you explain that? What do you mean? He said, it's simple, it's two things. I've learned to be mindful he said, I used to worry. I was a really anxious person. And that stress was the source of a lot of the reason that I am where I am now. It created my financial problems. It hurt my relationships. And it hurt my health. He said, but I've learned to both be mindful, not to project out to the future, but just live in the moment. And I've learned that Hashem has a plan. And that even with everything I've experienced and suffered, Hashem always has a plan. There's always a reason, there's always a plan. And the combination of leaning on Hashem and being mindful has resulted in my having less than I've ever had, but being happier than I've ever been. It's like, wow. Do you want to give the drush of the Shabbos? You know? <laughs> Unbelievable. So how does a person achieve that? Right? We don't want to have to get to that point, to have less than we've ever had, to be happier than we've ever been. Can I have more than I've ever had and be happier than I've ever been? I think Hashem says, yeah, you can, but just show me that you can be happier than you've ever been with more. With more. So, da'as. What does it mean that this individual had an act of negligence? What was the bli da'as? The negligence is a lack of mindfulness, of awareness, of living with the presence of Hashem in their life. When you stop clinging to Hashem, that's when the problems come. Not that the problems didn't exist if you'd cling to Hashem, but it means the problems come because you don't have the tools to, to engage them. How do you deal with the, the livelihood challenges? And how do you deal with the health challenges? And how do you deal with the relationship challenges? And how do you deal with the nachash challenges if you don't have the tools? And what's the tool? So the kid comes to school, they don't know anyone, and no one says, stick with me. Now they're anxious, they're nervous, and where do I go? And I'm in the right classroom, and I get the right cloud, and where do I sit at lunch, and what do I do for gym, and how do I do homework? And which teacher do you have to study the hardest for? And the moment that some kid says, just stick with me. I'll tell you which teacher you have to do this for and which kids to sit with and how do you do a gym and that. So now all of a sudden you say, ooh, I have a lot of work to do today. I still have to go to school. It doesn't mean I don't have to go to school anymore. But I have someone I could stick with. I'm relieved. It gives a sense of relief. Well, whatever we're going through in life, we can have the greatest sense of relief. Take a deep breath and feel relieved. Why? Because dveikas. Cling and stick with Hashem. Live with a sense of das. We're in the next paragraph. And the advice to go to the, the city of the Levim, the Gemara Chulun says the following, When you have a hardship, don't keep it to yourself. Some people are very private people. They're going through a challenge and they want to keep it private. But the Gemara says, if you have a hardship, you should share it. And why should you share it? Because the more people who are davening for you, the more people who are advocating for you, the bigger an impact. In other words, if you keep your challenge private, 
and you're davening to Hashem, make this challenge go away. Then Hashem says, well, let me get your file. Are you worthy? Are you unworthy? How important is it to keep you around? But now you have hundreds, thousands. You have dozens. You have tens. You have others davening for you. Hashem says, wow, now I'm getting the pressure of the whole crowd. Now the outcome of what I'm going to do is not just going to influence the individual, but now the decision of how I treat them is going to have an impact on all of these people. Now I've got to weigh the decision differently. Now I'm deciding how to treat this person, not just on their file, their merits and demerits, but based on the collective merits and demerits of all the people who are advocating for them. And that's the idea of our collectively saying to Hillam and earning zechuyos, earning the merits for people that we love, who are saying to Hashem, Hashem, you're not just influencing that person. It's all of us. And we need him. So maybe you think he for himself, whatever outcome you had planned, but we are protesting because we collectively need him. I don't know if you know the role that he plays in our lives. She plays in our lives. So therefore the Gemara says, Tell the problem to the masses. So the Salam Rebbe says, It doesn't say in the masses, will ask for compassion on his behalf. Doesn't say Yivakshu Alav, but Mivakshim Alav. Ki Yehudi Kasher Dovak Bashem La Yuchalav Olav Shum Tsar. Vizua Itza Yodia Tsaro Lorabim. Hanushi is Dabak Liyire Hashem. Vazrabim Mivakshim Alav Rachamim. What it means, the Islam Rebbe is reinterpreting this statement in Chulin. What it means is not tell the masses and the masses will add your name to the Tehillim list. What it means is attach yourself to people who live with Dvekus and that attachment to those people will itself bring you rachamim. The fact that you're clinging to those who have faith, their faith will rub off on you, and that is the rachamim. The greatest compassion you can have is to put down the worry, the anxiety, the stress, to know whatever is happening is happening for a reason. You're not just a result of randomness or a statistic. That there's a reason for everything. And that itself is the most compassionate thing. You know, the hardest thing in life is to go through life trying to understand why. But if someone said to you, this is why, you'd say, okay. If a doctor, someone randomly comes up to you with a knife and cuts you open, you scream out, you yell, Why? But if the doctor says, you have a disease and I'm going to take it out and it's going to heal you, you say, Wow, I understand. It's, does it make it not painful? It's still painful. But now you're prepared to do it and you welcome it because you understand that it's for your benefit. So if you attach yourself to those who are clinging to Hashem, and the result is that Amuna is contagious, because Amuna is contagious. When you hang around people, Mir Hashem, Be'ezus Hashem, Hashem, and so on, Amuna is contagious. It's contagious. When you hang around cynics, when you hang around sarcastic people, when you hang around doubters, that's also contagious. It seeps in. Eventually you start saying, you know what, maybe they're right. Maybe this whole thing is a fraud. It's the opium of the masses. Maybe this whole thing is ludicrous. Maybe this whole thing is unsophisticated. And when you hang out with people who have a muna, they lift you. It's like a, a, the ocean, you know, the, the tide rises and falls. They lift you. That's why it's so critically important to decide who we hang out with. Who we hang out with. So now we understand that this person who murdered by accident, it was an accident, didn't have to happen. 
Why did it happen? Bevlidas. It happened because they lacked a mindfulness. So where do you go? Now we understand the antidote. So the person who lacked mindfulness of Hashem and therefore had this accident that could have been avoided, what happens to them? They go to an ear miklat. An ear miklat is called an ear levium. Why? Because who are the mentors and the teachers? An ear miklat is not just a city of refuge like it's a great... Uh, um, not Four Seasons. What was that resort people used to belong to? A club. Club Med. The Ir Miklat's not Club Med. The Ir Miklat is rehab. The Ir Miklat is rehab. Why do you go to an Ir Miklat? What kind of rehab do you undergo? You learn to have mindfulness for Hashem. And who is positioned to teach you about how to live a life of mindfulness for Hashem? Which people? The Levim. And that's the connection of the Ir Levim to the Ir Miklat. And that's why you go there, and that's your antidote. Shashem Levi, Miloshan Yalave Ishi. The name Levi is like a Levaya. A Levaya is you escort the deceased person to the next world. But it's also, someone visits your home, you're obligated to be Malava them. Livui is to escort them out of your home. Dalad Amas, you have to walk with them outside your home. It's a tremendously critically important value, even more than the food peckle you give them to take home the leftovers, is that you don't send them home alone. You have to walk them out. I always describe when my Klein, Allah Shalom, used to eat at our house every Friday night. We went through the same routine every Friday. I would walk him home, and I'd want to make sure he got inside. Then he would walk me outside. <laughs> then I want to make sure he got inside. <laughs> then he insisted walking me outside. And we had this uh, every Friday night. We had the same routine. So you have to. That's the name Levi. Those who are Leviim, those who are the Leviim, and that includes Kohanim. Kohanim come from the tribe of Levi. Their job is to be Malava. They escort the Jewish people. There are teachers, there are mentors, there are rabbis, there are role models. Like the Rambam writes, Shevet Levi, that's why they're given these cities. Shevet Levi is the original model of a community kolol. So this individual, he climbs a ladder and he drops paint on someone and kills them. He, he swings with an axe and the head goes flying off and it kills someone. He says, it was an accident, I didn't mean it. God forbid, it's not manslaughter. I love that person, I'm not fighting with them. I'm, I'm devastated by what happened. We say, you know why happened what happened? Because you were living with negligence. You weren't mindful in what you were doing. Where is the place you can go? Where is the rehab? Where is the intense living quarters where you learn mindfulness? Go live with the Levim. They're malav. They'll teach you what it, leads, what it means to live a life of da'as. What it means to live a life of mindfulness. What it means to feel the presence of Hashem in your, in your life. We're out of time. But this is how he explains the whole thing. I'll just tell you. Look on the left-hand column, the third paragraph. This is on the base of Ram and the Oiv Yisrael. The Oiv Yisrael is the Aptarov of Avon Yeshua Heschel. This is how he explains. Why are there six Arei Miklot? Because there are six words in the Pasuk, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Kasher Yesh Yehudi Amuna Chazaka Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. When a person lives with the knowledge, with the mindfulness, with the awareness, there's a God who runs the universe. Hareze Ir Miklot Lanu Shama Korotzeach. Oh, I love that. It's Kishmak. If you need an ear miklat in your life, you say, you know what? I need some refuge. I can't take it. I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I'm suffocating. I can't take one more piece of bad news of somebody close to you dying or getting sick or having challenges. I, I can't take it. I'm crumbling. I can't. I'm worried about myself, my children, my life, what will be. So where's our ear miklat? Where's our ear miklat? Where can I go? Where can I hide? Where can I find some refuge from it all? Said the Oiv Yisrael, the Aptarav, you know where your Yerei Miklat is? There are six Yerei Miklat. You know what those six are? 
Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Go concentrate on those words. Go spend time thinking about that there's a plan, there's meaning, there's purpose, there's order to the universe, there's a Ribbono Shalom. That whatever's happening around you, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, it's not random, it's not chance, there's a reason. Go find strength and go find support, go find chizuk by saying Shema Yisrael over and over and over again. Those six words are our Ira Mikla. That's our Ira Mikla. In the strength of the clarity of our faith, and that's what saves us. Why do you go to the Ir Mikla? Because you're saved. Well, who's pursuing us that we need to be saved? You know who's pursuing us to kill us? Sahara. The Yet Sahara to be stressed out. The Yet Sahara for anxiety is trying to kill us. It's trying to raise our blood pressure. It's trying to ruin our relationships. It's trying to kill us. And where is our ear refuge, our ear miklat, our city of refuge that we can run to and find refuge from that Yetzahara, that Rotseach that's trying to kill us? The ear miklat is Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem Echad. It's a life of Da'as. It's a life of Emuna. It's a life of Dveikas. It's a beautiful piece. I'm sorry we didn't get to see all of it. You can continue to study it. And this is our uh, last time for a little while, but this is the message of, of working out that Amuna muscle. Put it down. The heavier you hold on to it, the longer you hold on to it, the heavier it becomes. We're along for the ride anyway. You might as well put it down. It's not going to make the wagon any heavier for the driver. The driver's driving the wagon. The sooner we realize the driver's driving the wagon, that ain't owed Milvado, that he's in charge. I, uh, I went last night. I was, I was learning with uh, Brian Galbert in the, in the Lakewood Cola in Miami Beach last night. And over the Arun are the words Ein Od Milvadeu I've never seen that I've seen many shuls and many Aronos uh, Kodesh and many have you know Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samed and we have Ivdu Hashem Besimcha and Dalaf Nehmiya I've never seen those words Ein Od Milvadeu Ein Od Milvadeu I love it I want to make a magnet and bumper stickers and to put it on our, our bathroom mirror and our kitchen refrigerator and the car dashboard and wherever we are in life that we lose our patience and that we begin to worry. It should be in doctor's waiting rooms and it should come back with every lab report. On all of that should be the words, Ain od milvado. Ain od milvado. If you have Ain od milvado on the lab report, does it mean every lab report will be, will be wonderful news? No, it doesn't. If you have it in the fridge, does it mean the food won't spoil or that they'll always be overflowing with, uh, with delicacies? No, it may mean you're not sure where you're going to pay for the next meal. But what it does is it gives us the strength, it gives us the koach to put all the heavy baggage down and to live life and to get to the madrega of this incredibly special person who said to me, I have less than I've ever had and I'm happier than I've ever been. So wishing everyone a phenomenal summer, a muna-filled summer, a summer of Ein Od Milvado, and that we should only hear Besoros Tovos.